Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here with George Edelman for the No Film School podcast, August 24th, 2019. Our stories this week are the first seasons of comedy TV shows and how they get rebooted for season two, uh, why Sony and Disney are not going to be playing together with Spider-Man toys, and we've got a patent battle going down in tech news, all that, and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so this is Charles Hain. I'm a tech writer for No Film School. I'm here with George Edelman. Hi, I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Comedy is the big headline, but we're actually going to talk about a couple of other things here. The way in which a lot of TV shows reboot themselves either after season one or after their pilot. And there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff here. This conversation is being kicked off. We had a video on our site this week that talked about the way in which specifically The Office rebooted itself after season one. If you haven't watched The American Office, the first season of The American Office is much closer to The English Office. Uh, the Michael Scott character, which is based on the David Brent character from The English Office, is um, much less charismatic, much darker, much sadder, has a receding hairline, um, there's like a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of darkness there in the English office, but you know, English TV shows do six episode seasons. Like you watch Fleabag, you watch Catastrophe, you watch the English office, they do a six episode, they call them series there. And then like four years later, they do another six episode series and then maybe they do a Christmas special. So you are not spending as much time with characters. Whereas like the American office was 20 episode uh, seasons and then there were like six or seven of them. So, you know, there's a hundred hours of your life you're spending with the American office as opposed to four hours of your life with the English office. So interestingly, they rebooted specifically focused on the character of Michael Scott after season one uh, of the American office, making Michael Scott first off, giving him a fuller head of hair. Uh, and I, and I, I've, I've always wondered this to the day. Cause you know, as someone who has lost his hair, you're very conscious of hairlines and movies. Um, you know, obviously, you look at a movie like Blue Valentine, and they went in and they plucked out the receding hairline and Ryan Gosling, and I'm assuming they must have done that in Michael Scott, and then they just let it grow back in for Steve Carell for season two. I don't think they made him get plugs. He doesn't look like a man with plugs, and you can always it's tell. So hard. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's hard to as an as a man as a balding man as well. It's you know it's it's there's a lot of we could do a whole podcast on the mysteries of movie stars of male movie stars hair. When you think about, as a screenwriter, you are always thinking about character introductions and, and how you define character. And The Office is one of those really interesting things where Michael Scott is obviously like a, a generation-defining character. Like, when you look at memes on the internet, they're always talking about how, like, oh, my God, nursing homes are going to be so crazy in 50 years. We're all just going to be watching The Office on a loop. And, like, <laughs> you know. I kind of wanted to come back for a second to, like, some of the genesis of this conversation. People might be wondering. And it started because we had a post up the four changes to Michael Scott that saved the office and made it a hit, which got picked up a few places and had quite a big weekend in terms of people reading it. And it made sense to me, though, because like you as you're getting to like people love the American office and there is like basically the meme that millennials just watch it nonstop. And I don't know that people talk about the craft. Now, if you're old, like Charles and I are, you really remember when the British office hit our shore and Everybody went crazy over it. It was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And this character and this, the comedy and everything about it. It was, do you remember that? 
Oh my god! Moment. Yeah, yeah. It was it like was, it was huge. It was yeah. huge, um, and I feel like people now probably don't. It's like an afterthought. It's like, oh, that show, The Office, is based on this. It was like when they t- tried to do The American Office, it seemed like a failed proposition to me. It was just like, no, you can't recreate that. And you know what? The interesting thing to me about the post is that you know what? You can't. What they did, in effect, was they recognized that it wasn't going to work unless they did what American audiences want, which is give you something that you want to come back to that has that comforting, familial vibe. But what's so fascinating and wonderful to me about it is that they didn't realize it until after they'd shot a full season. And that's what I love about it. It's like we're in this marketplace. If you're a filmmaker trying to get movies made, you are constantly out there, like trying to get your pilot in shape, trying to get it read, like trying to get a pilot that's perfect, trying to get like you're always trying to make the perfect thing. And there are these examples, because in a lot of the other arts, it's an iterative process where it's accepted that Mm. you're like, you know, I'm doing drafts and I'm rehearsing and like, you know, plays that run for 30 years are constantly evolving. And like, but there's this idea in the film industry that you have to create this perfect thing. And that perfect thing will then lead to, you know, success in whatever form. And I love the fact that after the first season, they're like, yeah, this is pretty good, but it's not quite right. Like, it's not Mm. quite doing what we want it to do, and let's look at refining one of these characters in order to do it. And so I think it's no accident that it's the same people behind The Office who also did an American show called Parks and Rec, which, if you haven't seen it, I didn't like it. And someone told me, oh, you didn't like it because you started with season one. Start with season two. Don't even worry about season one. (laughs) So I started with season two, and I really enjoyed it. And then at the end, I went back and watched season one. And again, they had a lead, Leslie Nope, in that show, who they completely retooled between season one and season two. And I think the success of both of those shows is both of those shows gave themselves the freedom to be iterative, to make mm-hmm. things and see how they work and keep evolving and refining those things. And it's like, a really interesting point, though, with TV is that, like, as having had, you know, the experience of developing, pitching and trying to package and sell TV content, you're always pushed to put the very best, most perfect, like everybody has to love this and it can be it has to be flawless. And then what you're seeing happening always is that, well, one writer, one creator puts something out there. And by the time they're on their second episode, not even second season, there's going to be a writer's room of experienced, talented creatives with their own lives and experiences to bring to the stories and to bring to the characters that enriches it. And suddenly, like, I mean, I know, I remember talking to uh, Dan Harmon, who I knew before he did Community or any of that stuff, and he was talking about how the thing is, like, you're, like, launching a ship with the pilot, but you're going to mine the lives of your writer's room for stories like that's where so much of the value is going to come once your show is going and it's just it puts the creator in a box at the beginning that it's so hard we expect so much out of them knowing full well that almost every show changes so much like you mentioned to me when we talked about this post and this story mad men if you've watched mad men and you haven't watched the pilot in a while it's a fine pilot it's a phenomenal pilot but, it's a, yeah, it's a different show, right? Yeah, it's a different I mean, character. You know, um, the wife is is not introduced till the final scene, and she has like three lines of dialogue. So January Jones was a total gamble of casting, where they were like, "Okay, you have this one scene in the pilot, and we are just going to assume that this character, who will obviously be a big part of the show, 
you know, like, I don't know what they auditioned her with if they were even auditioned. I don't know how famous she was at that point. But, like, you know, read these two lines of dialogue and we're going to cast you entirely based on that. Um, but also the entire Dick Whitman backstory where he had changed his name, completely non-existent in the pilot. This thing that's, like, yeah. the driving narrative arc of the first season is not in the pilot. And You know what's fascinating about that one, too? I always think about it when, I, when people talk about that pilot is that you are introduced to a character who's living one kind of life. And it seems like he's just this ad man. He had this girlfriend. He's blah, 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 blah. And then at the end, you're given this sudden, oh, he's a family man. Weird. I didn't see that coming. And that's the only indication you get that there's a duality to the character and to the story. There's a much bigger one coming later. But it's fascinating that they got by on that one. Without needing that, like imagine trying to put forth your pitch for Mad Men and saying, oh, and in the pilot, that whole thing that the story is going to be about, we're not even going to bring it up. How does yeah. that work? I'm assuming that wasn't in their minds when they shot the pilot. I'm assuming. Yeah, maybe not. You know, because the pilot yeah. shot a year before the season, the pilot shot in New York, and then it was an L.A. shot show at L.A. Center Studios. I am assuming somewhere on a plane flight over <laughs> from New York to L.A., when it seemed like, oh, we're getting picked up, he looked down and he saw Nebraska or Missouri or wherever Dick Whitman is from, from the airplane, <laughs> three months after the pilot was shot and was like, I need to get Missouri into this. Um, or some <laughs> other similar thing. Like, I don't think any of that was at all on their mind in the pilot. Or else they would have hinted. There would have been a joke. There would have been something. It's a, but, it's like, I literally point. think that that is all after the pilot. Which That's is, a good point. I don't know either way. I do think that they... Um, I do think that it makes sense that they got their sh like. So he wrote it initially. I think when he was still writing Sopranos, I could be I, wrong about that. If I remember, this is what got him Sopranos. He wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. He so got it's, it's a script. He right. Yeah. It, he wrote it a long time ago. Right? A long time before <laughs> like it that got first made. pilot script. Yeah. Yes, a long time before, which is a long time ago from now. But yeah, it's an interesting story of like how yeah. Maybe they realize, you know what? Maybe we don't have enough like legs for this story. Like it's just this guy who's an ad man who, yeah. you know, like what's the what's the rest of the story? Fascinating though. Yeah, um, and it's it, I, like the opposite of like Breaking Bad, where it's all there, right? Yes, in that first pilot. Which, but that also leads me to another thing. Which, if if you guys haven't seen, you should all. It, this is available. It's out there. I'm, I hope I'm not encouraging illegal behavior. I don't know if it's out there legally, but like Thirty Rock. If you haven't seen the original pilot for 30 Rock, you should see it. Because if you're a 30 Rock fan at all, or even if you're not, it's a really fascinating example of they retooled 30 Rock at the pilot stage. Like before even they'd shot a season, they shot a pilot. And then the network was like, about half of this is good. They recast a bunch of parts. <laughs> they rewrote a bunch of things. And about half of the original pilot is in the pilot for 30 Rock. And then about half of it got completely reshot and characters got recast. And it's this amazing thing of looking at something. Didn't know that. And doing yeah. this. Oh, and you should watch the pilot. Because whoever had the skill, and I I think it's Kevin Riley, but I'm not sure. Whoever had the skill to look at it and be like, you need to recast this and you need to reshoot this. Like, that. most network executives, I think, would throw that first pilot out and just not pick up the show. But to see the pieces that are going to work within that and then craft them, it's really impressive. Because it's also a really great reminder of like, how important tone is when you're directing a pilot. Like, how important, like, coherent characters. Like, there's a character they recast who, like, is in a different show than everybody else. Uh, it's Suri. And it actually, it's really interesting because it really 
it's such a compliment to Karina, um, the actress's name. I don't remember who played Suri on the show. Like, she gives a great performance. And the original Suri is in a, like, she's in a more traditional sitcom space. And it just doesn't hmm. work. And you're like, right. oh, yeah, even this part, which is a small part with a lot of throwaway gags, requires the right person in that part. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, you know, you're reminding me that because uh, I didn't know about that one. But with Game of Thrones, we were talking a lot oh, about yeah, Game of Thrones uh, is the other the classic of- example. Right. They did a pilot and they had to recast and there's some not maybe not footage that I know of, but there's definitely images of them. And um, another classic, actually, maybe the classic example, certainly if you're a TV nerd or just a nerd in general, which I am, is Star Trek, because they had their original pilot for one kind of Star Trek show and they didn't get picked up. So they shot a whole new one. And that's Shatner was the big change from the original to the other. And what's funny about that one. Yeah. Yeah. The original pilot was, um, I want to say like, it's funny because it's, it's less goofy and less theatrical. Obviously it didn't have Shatner and a little more like twilight zoney. And it's a great concept. The original pilot for Star Trek called the cage is a much more like cerebral sci-fi concept and the second pilot they shot where they made some changes and uh brought in shatner is a lot closer to a buck rogers style you know space swashbuckler um and, and it's interesting because that's what worked at the time and that's what got that show going um but there's a lot of funny stories uh in the you know the whole world the stories behind making Star Trek that illuminate some of what happened between the two and and Roddenberry was forced to choose between Mr. Spock his beloved alien character and the female who was actually in a position of power on the original pilot they said you can either have the alien or you can have the woman second in command but you can't have both which you know he was a forward thinking guy so those were i guess two sort of progressive ideas and he picked the alien that's what they say at least um it's well, you know interesting stuff though the i think the summary is as good tv is iterative that this like obsession we have with the perfect polished pilot actually if you can put yourself in a position where you can iterate where you can try something and see how it works and then try something else and refine you can do great iterative work in the tv format yeah, and I would just add because a lot of our, you know, a lot of people won't get may not get that opportunity, but they can think about what pilots they're putting together or pitching in the sense of like is there an opportunity for this to grow and iterate and change if it needs to or are you locking yourself into certain things? I think you can give yourself like if you're a film student right now or if you're just an independent filmmaker right now, I think you can also give yourself the freedom to be iterative. Like one thing I've noticed a lot is like a lot of people are like, "All right, I've shot this thing." And then whatever it is, I'm going to do all the post work I need on it to, like, make it. And then it's done and I move on. But, like, you shot your thesis film or you've shot your indie feature. And then you get through post and you can look at it and you can say, actually, well, I want to reshoot half of it. And, like, oh, yeah. that that's okay. That doesn't make that's you a, a great note. failure. That's as a great a, lesson. You know, <laughs> you're not a bad filmmaker because you do that. 30 Rock did that. Game of Thrones did that. The Office did that. Parks and Rec did that. Star Trek did that. Like, it doesn't make you... You should not hate on yourself if you do that. You should give yourself the permission to continue reshooting it and rewriting it and repolishing it until it is what you want it to be. It's a great note because yeah. I, you know, if I could... I've, I've feature I worked on, if I could go back and, and have pushed myself to, like, you know what? Find the money and redo X 
Yeah. It makes a big difference. And if you're right, if they're doing it at that level, then why should anyone shy away from it? Yeah, especially in, if you're in a situation where it's like you're you're doing a thesis film with a bunch of your friends, or you're like you're a film you're you're a college student, but you're not even studying film, and you're just making a film with your friends on the weekends, like. You know, the big hurdle there is just the emotional hurdle of continuing to push yourself to keep going. The cameras are so cheap. And, you know, if you're outside New York and L.A., the locations are so cheap. It's like you just have to find the food and get people together. So, like, keep finding the food and getting people together until it is what you want it to be. (laughs) And let's also just caveat and say, as long as I'm talking about nerd things I like, let's not be as iterative as, say, George Lucas. Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> All maybe right. there's a two maybe there's a two iterative version right sometimes yeah. people just keep tra- changing when it's, it's leave well enough alone <laughs> all right that's fair that's fair i i would say once your movie has been the most successful movie of all time you should you should just you should lock it you should say all right you done should, you, you have been like... the biggest hit in history i do not you need could... to change who shot first you could you don't need to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory yes. you mean yes <laughs> speaking of that if, if this is a good yeah. transition uh, another thing we want to talk about this week is so a little bit of context on this story it's the sony versus disney story so there's this thing that many of you have probably noticed that there are a lot of spider-man movies and if you didn't know why there are a lot of spider-man movies there's a very good contractual reason back in the 90s before everybody knew that superhero movies were going to be good superhero movies used to be real shitty like, go watch some <laughs> early 90s superhero movies. as like go, a 90s... go find some old Avengers movies from the 70s oh and 80s. Oh, my God. I think they exist. They're real bad. <laughs> They're real bad. Other than Batman. Batman got good in the 80s, but nothing else got good until about 2006. So, 1978 so... Superman's okay. Let's oh, yeah. I forget it. Credit. All right. Yeah, okay. But it's it doesn't hold a candle to modern superhero movies. Superhero movies got much better. Yes. Um, Sony cut a deal with Marvel Entertainment to license this one character or this one universe, Spider-Man. But their license only extended provided they kept making movies. So they couldn't, Sony can't sit on their Spider-Man contract. They have to make a Spider-Man movie every set number of years. And if a longer period goes without a Spider-Man movie getting made, the license reverts to Marvel. Now... Obviously, Marvel would love that license back. <laughs> um, Marvel's now owned by <laughs> Disney. Um, there's been a lot of negotiations because obviously Spider-Man is in the Avengers movies, t- the Tom Holland Spider-Man. So there are a it lot. It really of- reminds me, just to interject on that, and Marvel being owned by Disney is is more than a footnote. It's a huge piece of the landscape of this of this puzzle right now. But I wanted to just really quickly say the Spider-Man being in um, in Avengers. Reminds me, if you're like Charles and I are, and you're like a ho- an old Hollywood and a film historian type, stars used to be on loan to studios yes. because the IP in the old days was a star. So a Cary Grant, for example, Cary Grant was actually weird. He was he kind of was always a free agent, but like Humphrey Bogart belonged to Warner Brothers. He was their IP. He was like Batman is to Warner Brothers right now. Whereas uh, Clark Gable belonged to MGM. And so you didn't get a star unless there was these special circumstances of loan outs and deals and trades and such, which was the de- that's what we're talking about now with these characters. So I'll let you continue. But I wanted to well, point that no, out. because I think it's a fascinating parallel. Well, it's also a really fascinating parallel because we're entering this phase in which the stars are characters, not human people with DNA who die. So yes. there was a period where it was like Mel Gibson, 
and Will Smith and Cary Grant, and these were the stars, and that was what was driving you to go to the movie, whereas now... It is moving much more, and what's interesting, I actually wrote a paper on this in like 2003 about how in the future, you know, because obviously studios would far rather it be characters that they own than stars because stars can decide I'm going to Palm Springs to play tennis for three weeks and you're just going to have to wait on me or any of the other like. That's actually really tame for Star's antics. Star's can yeah, have they can have drug problems. <laughs> yeah, they can have drug problems. They can sexually harass people. They can, like, there are all sorts of things Star's do that, like, Thor isn't doing. Um, so, obviously, it's in the, the corporation's best interest to have these characters be synthetic. What's funny is I wrote this paper in 2003, and in my mind in 2003, the studios were going to deliberately invent these, like, digital celebrities. Um, and it, it's do, so you fun- wanna, do you want to, do you want to, Pull out that paper. Maybe oh we can God. publish it. I'm so <laughs> embarrassed. I can't even imagine what is in that. But what's interesting, I, di- I didn't realize in 2003, is that they're not going to digitally invent it. There's going to be characters that exist in our culture that they're going to get the rights to. And, you know, like, let's be honest. Like, Tom Holland's a popular actor. Andrew Garfield's a popular actor. Spider-Man is the star there, right? Like, Andrew Garfield, his biggest attendance movies were the Spider-Man movies. And that stardom didn't follow him after he left. You know, I don't know what he's done since he was in Spider-Man. I mean, he's been in movies, but none of them have seen Spider-Man numbers. Like uh, Hayden Christensen, the same way. He was in those Star Wars movies. Those movies were billion-dollar movies. Million, hundreds of millions of people saw them. His movies since have not had hundreds of millions of people going to them. So it's those characters are the thing people are going to see. And as actors leave those characters, we can replace those actors with other actors. And eventually digitally, probably with digital recreations. Like there will be a point. Yeah, bring back the deep fix. Yeah, there will be a point. I mean, we already saw it in Rogue One, right? Where it's like, oh, we can still keep having Leia in the movies. And there was always the rumor that Lucas was was plotting to replace all of them and digitize yeah. all of them. And fix but Luke's I did want to th- <laughs> I did want to throw one other thing out there though, as you were saying that, which is that sometimes we think that maybe you know, okay, Spider Man's been like cast six ways since Sunday. You know, <laughs> there's been a million Spider Mans, um, but there's been one Iron Man, yes. and he's kind of the face that launched a thousand ships, but. And, of course, studio didn't really want to cast him at the time, speaking of people who've had rough problems and need insurance policies. But Robert Downey Jr., excellent, charismatic, huge part of what made Marvel come alive. At the same time, do you remember when Robert Downey Jr. made a couple of movies that were off Iron Man, that were different stories, different characters? Didn't quite do the same numbers. So as much as he is in, as much as he is Iron Man and he's made that those movies uh, when he tried to make a movie about a lawyer where Robert Duvall played his father, right? Although that movie looked like Stone Cold Garbage, like just on the trailer. <laughs> it might have been good. <laughs> the trailer was not good. Who like the, like I I don't want to offend the filmmaker if they're listening. It could have been a good movie. I but didn't holy see the crap, movie. That trailer was bad. That trailer <laughs> it, was you know a what terrible it like? trailer. It looked like the movie. That trailer looked like it walked out of 1994. Oh my god! It was it like totally whoa. Did. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Like, what? but no, you're totally right. As much as the internet loves Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. They love Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, and when he has done non-Iron Man movies in the last decade, that audience has not gone with him to those movies. Nope. And that's, that's the thing. And, like, if you're a studio, and you're sitting around right now saying, all right, can we cast, who can we cast when we reboot Iron Man, and Robert Downey Jr.'s son is not old enough yet, 
do you, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you guys, uh, we've run a story about Gemini Man, right? Yes. So Gemini Man is the, Will Smith plays two characters. Will Smith plays middle-aged Will Smith and young Will Smith in the same movie because it's a character about an assassin who has been cloned and his clone is coming to kill him. And so Will Smith at two ages is acting together. So if you're a studio and this technology is now here with the de-aging technology getting really great and deep fakes making it much easier to do and much, like, can you just do a young Iron Man but with Robert Downey Jr. and you just de-age him to be 17? Like, so, and then at a certain point, like, do you even, can you just... They already did de-age him, Mac. Do you remember? There was one movie where they showed a clip. I haven't seen all of them. I apologize. But there was one, I remember, where they did de-age him for a, a flashback of some yeah. kind. And it was like, ooh, creepy. It's like But it's probably Robert much Downey better Jr. than it was five years ago. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah. honestly, that Gemini Man stuff, Will Smith has aged so well that it's kind of the wrong guy to do it with. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I had the same thought. I was watching the trailer, and I was like, but Will Smith still looks like he's, like, 24. So it's, like, <laughs> yeah, a 21-year-old and a 24. Like, Will Smith is in such great shape, and he's he uses so much, like, I don't know. Some He's using some sort of magic. Anyway, the actual story in all of this is Sony and Disney are negotiating for the collaboration between Sony and Disney in an ongoing capacity. And can you actually break down? I couldn't quite figure out, like, as far as I can tell, the deal right now is Sony is telling Disney to fuck off. Is that the correct interpretation? So Disney helped save Spider-Man because Sony was getting to the point where they were rights were reverting and they were struggling to make hits. The Garfield Spider-Man movies were not delivering. And so Disney partnered. He came back. He came through with the Avengers. He was on loan, essentially. Disney slash Marvel. Keep that in mind. And uh, his Far From Home was a big hit, obviously, this summer. I believe it crossed the billion-dollar mark. That's probably in this story. Um, but because Sony also had such big success with Into the Spider-Verse and um, Venom, and they're making a Venom a sequel and there's a lot apparently of characters in the Spider-Verse. Spider-Man has his own universe of characters that they're excited about mining now for content. So Sony's feeling good about themselves and they're feeling like they don't need Disney and they have the ability to reviews Disney's partnership going forward. So the question is, you know, what's going to happen now? Is Disney going to come out with a different offer or are they going to work it out? Or is, you know, Spider-Man just going to be at Sony again? And then the interesting thing kind of becomes, is Sony going to screw it up again? <laughs> I mean, not not to say that they how that happened the first time, but, you know, things they ended up partnering with Disney on Spider-Man movies again because things weren't working out. So what's going to happen? Are they going to have they refound their footing and is it going to? take off i mean are people excited about an andy circus directed venom sequel i haven't even heard of a lot of these spider-man characters that they're launching sequels and spinoffs about so this is a big kind of thing for sony to be doing you know they're kind of like hey we do have we can plant our flag in this comic book character ip that we have and we're not going to share it and you know that makes sense because what disney has so much other stuff and this is an important piece of sony's puzzle into the spider-verse was huge so we have the um, dc cinematic universe and the marvel cinematic universe spider-man has been playing in the marvel cinematic universe and this is sony saying we're actually going to have the spider cinematic universe yes because they have yes they feel he's big enough and they've had enough success and be and just because they have 
the ability to do it. I mean, I'm sure if they had a different character, they, if they had just Wolverine, they would try to do But also keep in mind another like side thing to this is that the X-Men belonged to Fox, but now Fox belongs to Disney, like everything else, it seems, except for Spider-Man. And so X-Men, the, the movie that came out this summer that was an X-Men movie was like a vestige of the Fox X-Men uh, someone could correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, please email us or comment. But I, as I understand it now, X-Men is a Disney Marvel property. So we may see what a new Wolverine or whatever else. And but, I only mention that because if like Sony owned Wolverine, you'd see the Wolverine averse because anybody looking to get a piece of one of these things is like, you know, yeah. they're, they're hungry for any piece of it. Well, and basically it was the X-Men universe where the Wolverine movie interacted with X-Men. And now we can see an X-Men Avengers crossover movie where they are yes. fighting the same villain. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it here on the podcast because it's unlikely to affect me professionally. I like Sony's gamble because Sony's saying we're going to build our own universe and it's going to stand on its own and it's going to survive. I don't think it's the same thing we're seeing right now with all of the streaming services. Now there's like nine streaming services competing. And I think audiences are going to pick like one or two. Like nobody's going to nobody's going to pay for Apple TV and HBO Now and Hulu and Netflix and Amazon. Like it's just too many services. And I think the same way people are going to decide which universes they keep up with where they're like, I'm going to try and see most of the and then they're going to like let, you know let the DC universe go because it's too hard to try and keep up. And once you've missed a couple of the movies, you don't want to dip back in because you're like, oh, I haven't seen like any of those movies in four years. I don't want to get back in. And I th- I just think Sony might might be better playing that hand to play a couple more years in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before trying to make sp- the Spideyverse its own thing. But I completely agree. I would actually say I'd go one further and I would say like it's it's always smart. It's like what is it? Uh pound wise and penny penny wise pound foolish. Like I feel like to not take advantage of the opportunity to continue what is a 50-50 partnership's not bad. Um you look, I'm no studio mogul, but from where I sit, like <laughs> it seems like you could continue to take advantage of all the momentum that Marvel has getting people to theaters and yeah. excited about characters. And you could use that to funnel into your, instead of going off now and saying, I'm going to like stake it. It's like, they just got this thing back up and running and it's going well. And it's hard. Like, look at what's happening with DC and, and at Warner brothers. I mean that it like, no matter what they keep trying, it's like they keep running up against a wall because like you said, I think it's a good point. People only have so much bandwidth and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm all in on this Marvel thing, but I don't really, you know, not yeah. I'm not caught up to where I'm not as in. Some people are into all of it, but, you know. Yeah, but I most agree. people only can follow a couple. We have a patent battle in tech news. It is Red versus Apple. Uh, which is interesting because Jim Gennard and Steve Jobs, I mean, Steve Jobs has passed away, but there, there's a lot of like interesting personality traits between the two of them. Um, so it's interesting also, to if watch you, these. if you Google Red versus Apple, you're not going to get anything about this. You're going to get a lot of pictures of, of Red Apples. Just, uh, that's been my experience. Yeah. Just so, a word to the wise. A little bit of background on this. So it, I'm, I'll, I'll take it to the, to the scrap. Apple is a computer company. 
<laughs> we'll take it to the basis and assume maybe you don't even know <laughs> no. that. Wait, can you tell me about the building it was founded in, <laughs> in uh, Palo Alto? In a garage in 1976 <laughs> right. by a barefoot, unshowered, apple-eating maniac. Um, they make their own operating system. They make an editing platform called Final Cut 10. They make uh, all sorts of stuff. They make iPhones. Half of you are probably listening to this on your iPhone. Uh, the iPhone has a video camera in it. They... Uh, they make this format ProRes. So that's one side of this battle. And then the other side of the battle is the company Red. Red, I, I have to give them credit where credit's due. Some people have argued whether it's an actual disruptive innovation. They dis- they The digital cinema landscape we live in right now in many ways was created by Red's original Red One camera, which came out between 2006 and 2007. And... Before that, we were very much in a digital video landscape where we had big manufacturers like Panasonic and Sony, but they were really making cameras that felt like a news camera that had sort of been like tweaked to work on a film set. And, you know, you saw on those early digital video movies, they didn't look cinematic. The sensors were smaller and the bit depth was smaller and the resolution was smaller. And and like they really were like TV cameras. And we talked about this when we talked about Collateral and Attack of the Clones and all of that, too. So you can listen to the past episodes. (laughs) So Red came out with a camera called the Red One, which, you know, everyone, when it was first announced, accused it of being vaporware. Like, the internet was definitely like, that that couldn't exist. If that could exist, Sony would already have made it for us. It was like 4K resolution, so 4,000 pixels across, and it could shoot raw, and raw is um, less processed, and it could shoot straight to a hard drive, and it was like only going to be $17,000, and like, you know, the the high-end 1080 HD cameras that only shot 10-bit and had a two-thirds of an inch sensor were like $100,000, and so it was like, everyone was like, bullshit, bullshit. And as we've seen from many Kickstarters in the last decade, a lot of times that would be bullshit. But red to their credit, camera came out. Steven Soderbergh shot a movie on it. Peter Jackson shot movies on it. We've all shot movies on it. Like it is a thing. And it, everybody else had to like scratch their heads and play catch up. It, it really did something. Between 20, 2005 and 2010, how we capture movies changed. And a lot of credit for that goes to red. Now, Red patented a lot of what they did. And let's talk about patents and give patents a little context here really quick. So you can patent an idea, but you can get a different kind of patent if you have a working prototype. And I'm not a patent lawyer, so I'm going to keep this shit real general, and I'm not going to use like patent <laughs> lawyer language. But it, but from my understanding of this case, Red got the kind of patent that you get when you have a working prototype. So they patented... And what they specifically patented was a device that captures raw video compressed. So it's raw video, which means it's unprocessed. It hasn't been color balanced. It hasn't been, you know, it is a bare sensor, which if you don't know what a bare sensor is, a podcast is not the place to learn about bare sensors. It's (laughs) B-A-Y-E-R. It really requires visual aids. Look it up on Wikipedia. But it's bare data that hasn't been processed so it's visible. So it's not visible to the naked eye. It's just data, and it hasn't been color balanced, hasn't been ISO processed, hasn't been noise corrected, anything like that. And then they compress it, and their patent is at least 24 frames a second, 4K, and recording to a SATA drive, SA, serial ATA drive, which is like the internal mini-mag. And that's what they patented. And they based the dates of their patent on when they were able to show these public demos. So there's a company called Ginitech. Ginitech uh, really is at war with Red right now. <laughs> um, so Ginitech is uh, a company that makes non-Red mags, 
you know, you need a you need a, a red mag or a red mini mag to shoot on a red camera. You can't just use a mass market SD card or a mass market CFast card. You have to use specific red media. And, you know, for a 512, you know, for it costs $1,500 for something that if you could use an SD card, it would only cost $200. So Ginny thinks that's expensive. So Ginny makes these Ginny mags, which they have figured out how to make them work in a red camera. And uh, they've made all these videos about how red's ripping you off. I don't know if red's ripping you off or not. I think it's okay for companies to charge extra to pay for their R&D. I think it's okay for companies to charge extra to cover their customer support service. You know, I've had situations where I've had one time where a red mag failed in my 10 years of shooting with red. And, you know, we sent it to the rental house and the rental house got the shot off that mag. And is that going to happen with a Ginny mag? I don't know. Um, we're professionals. We need professional tools. We need a high level of reliability. If that means we pay a little extra for it, it's worth it for me. However, I'm usually assuming that it's like a 100% markup. It's like a $500 thing costs 1000 a $250 thing costing $1,500 seems aggressive. So I sort of get why Ginny Mag's pissed. Um, so Ginny Mag came out with like a huge 30-minute video attacking all of Red's patents. Basically saying like, Red said they had a working prototype by this date. But if you look at these pictures from NAB on this date, which conflicts with that, you can see their prototype totally doesn't work. Because you can follow this like cable down to this little thing. And underneath the thing, hidden by a curtain, they had another computer working. And so their prototype wasn't like, Ginny Mag went for it. <laughs> it is full on conspiracy theory. It is like, it is a kind of amazing and wonderful. Unrelated to that, back in April... Or May, Apple sued uh, to invalidate Red's patents. Is it related to the to the same evidence Ginny Mag is using to attack Red's patents? We don't know. What's interesting about all this especially is the patent is specifically about recording raw internally. And it has to be compressed bare, uncompressed bare raw data. So undebayered compressed data. So like Blackmagic doesn't pay any licensing fees for their Blackmagic raw codec. Because Blackmagic partially debayers their data before compressing it. And as far as we can tell, they deliberately do that so they don't have to pay red patent fees. Apple, mm. their ProRes raw. I didn't know that. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, Blackmagic is savvy. ProRes we raw. We are really uh, digging into literally yes. inside of these cameras. Apple has their ProRes format. ProRes raw is completely undebayered when it's compressed, but it's external. And remember the patents for internal, but it's external to like an Atomos recorder or it's external to a DJI Inspire, right? And it's weird that mm. it's external to a DJI Inspire. It's, a, it's an odd argument, but if you think about the Inspire, the camera hangs below and the recorder's up in the body. But we haven't seen ProRes, ProRes RAW integrated internally into a camera yet. So I think Apple doesn't want to pay the licensing fees and is willing to mm. attack it to see if they can invalidate the patent. But in 2013, Sony tried to invalidate this patent, and they lost. And they eventually paid licensing fees for their internal XOCN, their like digital camera negative, internal raw recording. They pay licensing fees to RED to license the patent technology for their internal recording. So this is about Apple wanting to move ProRes RAW to be an internal format. There's a bunch of people online who are like, this means the iPhone's going to shoot RAW. I don't think the iPhone has horsepower for RAW, but we do see ProRes in a very popular camera, the Arri Alexa. You can currently shoot, like I just did a job on the Alexa LF, 
Uh, beautiful camera, wonderful footage, love that camera. You can shoot ProRes internally in that camera, or you can shoot RAW to Airy RAW on that camera. But if you haven't done an Airy jo RAW job lately, those files are huge. Pretend that I don't understand any of this. <laughs> no, but just explain to me that if the Alexa, does, is Alexa not, is I'm Airy assuming, not paying I'm assuming patent? Alexa is paying licensing fees to Red is my guess. Okay. I was going to say that yeah. that's what I was wondering. That's not all public. I don't know okay. if this is all public. Maybe someone okay. in, in Twitter will correct me on this, but uh, I, I'm not sure if that is public. But so Aerie is not, I, I think Aerie is paying the license. I think Aerie and Sony, I mean, I, I imagine Aerie and Sony have a huge department of people that are just paying patent licenses to people because so much is patented. If you're Aerie, hmm. you know, someone has probably patented one of your cable connectors and one of your, you know, like when you're making cameras at that level, Sony and Aerie, it's not that big a deal for them to pay license fees. It's part of doing business. It's part of the way they operate. They're just, it's part of their life. You know, just explain to me again why Apple would be resistant. I mean, that's, you know. I, I mean, I think. But doesn't it make sense for Apple to be like, yeah. Okay, why wouldn't we'll Apple just immediately pay it? Well, first off. Yeah. Uh, I think Apple will fight things that they think they can win. Like Apple. Yeah. I think Apple has a corporate culture of being willing to fight. Like Apple famously had big fights with Samsung over being like, you know, Android and Google over Android ripping off the iOS. And I think that Apple is willing to be litigious about these things. It is also possible yeah. that Apple wants to do internal raw record. I don't see any reason why Apple would want to do internal raw recording. It doesn't make any sense on an iPhone. Like huh. iPhone images are not getting retouched in the same way, but if they're doing it for iPhone, they certainly don't want to pay the license fees for iPhones. You know, there's right. hundred million iPhones a year, whatever yes. that license fee is. If the license fees by camera, they're not paying it to red to do raw on an iPhone. Right. So maybe it's that. Maybe there so is something some... like that. Yeah. It's also entirely possible that it's just Apple. Apple wants their formats to be the dominant format. ProRes yeah, is was... the dominant format in post. They want ProRes RAW to be the format that every camera except the Blackmagic Ursa shoots, in my opinion. Right. So that is still tens of thousands of cameras. Like if they can get it so that by default, ProRes RAW is what's being shot in anything that that's made by anybody except Blackmagic. And hell, maybe even they talk Blackmagic into offering it as an option, even though Blackmagic has their own raw format as well. Blackmagic's usually been pretty good about being flexible, um, especially because if they have to pay a license fee for installs of the software, like ProRes RAW is also used, like if they're, if they're licensing part of that raw codec in software installs of ProRes RAW, they're probably not. But, like, if every installation of Final Cut 10 has to pay a license fee for the patent on that technology, mm. that would also be a big problem for Apple. I don't think it is. I think it's just when it's in a camera that there's an issue. But they still want it out in a lot of cameras. The, if they feel like they can successfully fight it and win it, and if they looked through the paperwork and were like, oh, hey, actually, I don't think. You know, because there were a lot of patents competing you know, if you read through the case, EOS HD has been the big people who've been pushing a lot of this story um, or documenting a lot of this story. If you read through some of their really long articles, there are some other competing patents that were trying to come out around the same time, which is why the date of when the prototype was working is so important in this story. Because other people right. were putting in like, we have a working prototype at the same time. And maybe one of those is getting supported by Apple in their competition it's interesting to watch this play out in terms of trying to use it to guess where apple is going with this um it is entirely possible it's an iphone thing although i i just can't i don't know why you would want raw video in an iphone i just can't like 
obviously Soderbergh wants raw video on an iPhone so that he can shoot with it. <laughs> but you can install an app for that. You know, you can install Filmic Pro, which is what Soderbergh uses for doing that kind of thing. But like for, uh, you know, for a million users, what do they need raw video for? They're not going back and correcting that video later. Maybe there's some application I'm not thinking through where th- they want to record raw video so that their own apps have more access to that video for later processing for some sort of, I don't know. There, there, there could be something we're not seeing here. My guess it's really about camera tech. It's, it's, it's probably the reason why right now Airy Raw is the only raw video in um, an Alexa. But as I was saying before, Airy Raw files are massive. They're huge. And if I could shoot ProRes Raw instead of Airy Raw, I probably would. Because frankly, on most times when I have the, every time I've shot with the LXLF, it's only been three times now. Every single time we've always done one airy raw shot just so we can say we've shot some airy raw. And then we switch over to ProRes because the files are just too big. Um, yeah. So I, I suspect it has more to do with, you know, right now we are in a wild west of there's Sony raw and Canon raw and airy raw. And it would be really nice if all the cameras just shot ProRes raw. So hopefully this is about that. But it's, it's like, uh, these are some big companies going over a patent battle and red has countered very hard where they're like, our prototype was working. You guys were all there. Don't you remember? We were all at NAB together. Um, it's like almost an emotional appeal to like, remember that NAB guys? We were all there. Um, look, I, I don't, I have no horse in this race. It is fascinating though, because, um, how often has there been such a major industry with so many major players that are like staking their claim in different pieces of the, of the land. So you can't exist entirely without all of them. You know what I mean? There's like, there, there's like a dominant company for like a lot of different little elements of this and it pieces together to form the landscape. But there isn't this kind of like battle is, is fascinating because they want to have a bigger share of that pie in terms of like their proprietary, like I was thinking maybe one reason for Apple is that Apple really values their, their uh, being a source of the idea. Like it's Apple's creation, Apple's proprietary blank, you know, and everything with Apple is like that. So maybe that's part of the reason they are particularly interested in this fight. I don't know, as opposed to an Aerie. We are out of time this week, so there will be no Ask No Film School this week, but we have an Ask No Film School prepared, so you will get a thorough Ask No Film School answer next week, uh, unless somebody asks a newer, better, more relevant question between now and then. So if you want uh, more tech news, I have a tech news podcast called Week in Film Tech that is only tech nerdery. There's no discussion of, like, pilots getting reshot. Uh, you can always follow me on Twitter, at Charles Hain, uh, on Instagram, also at Charles Hain. Um, and you can read all of my posts on nofilmschool.com. George? And I'm George Gentleman, and you can uh, read a lot of what we're talking about and more, and some things we haven't talked about on uh, nofilmschool.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at George Edelman. Please email us at editor at nofilmschool.com with any questions, comments, concerns, corrections, ideas, answers, whatever. All right, I will see you guys all next week. Have fun making movies this weekend.